October 3rd, 2012, in Rindavan, Bhagavatam Canto 1, Chapter 9, Text 34 to 49, Part 2. So we looked in these verses about the rasa, the little bit of the science of rasa, the relationship, the rasa that our Bhishma is having with Krishna. We're going to look a little bit at the, now at the greatness of devotees. And we talked about this before, but how Bhishma is entering into the samadhi of love. This is particularly in both texts 39 and 43, that the yogis, the samadhi they enter into is mechanical. They, by adjusting the body posture and adjusting the breathing, they put their mind into a state of trance. Now anybody can learn how to do this. I can have all of us here do this. It's not a very difficult thing to do. Even the great demon Stalin was able to put his mind into a state of trance and have surgery without anesthesia. So that's mechanical. And the yogis, they put their mind into a state of trance and then they meditate on Vishnu in the heart. Of course, the idea is that by doing that, they will eventually see Vishnu and start to love Vishnu. But the first motivation for doing that is not love. In bhakti, the idea is that you hear about Krishna, you talk about Krishna, you think about Krishna, you fall in love with Krishna, and when you fall in love with Krishna, then you become absorbed in samadhi. It's a samadhi of love. Prabhupada says it's much easier. If you love somebody, no one has to teach you how to be absorbed in them. Just, just happens. Same thing if we're if we, if we don't like somebody, if we're afraid of somebody. Like Kamsa was absorbed in Krishna out of fear. You know, if you're worried about somebody, so again, you don't need to go through some process. Okay, everybody, sit down, relax, close your eyes, breathe deeply, think about the person that you're afraid of. You know, you don't need to because if you're afraid of them, you're thinking about. Them. We all, we all become absorbed in our objects of attachment. Now, Bhishma is asking also for the mercy of the gopis. So, of course, this is interesting that Bhishma personally doesn't want to be a gopi. But he knows the gopis are the highest devotees of Krishna. And so he's asking for their mercy at the time of death. So this is the reality of the Russes, that each devotee is attracted to Krishna in a particular way. And they may know that something else is higher, but they don't feel like it's higher for them. For them, they feel the way that they're attached to Krishna is the best. And Bhishma talks about the gopis' oneness. I know I talked about this recently, and I think it was here where we talked about how Krishna also has the devotees feeling what it's like to be Krishna. Did I talk about that here? No, I talked about this somewhere recently with somebody. So, we have come to this, to material consciousness because we want to know what it's like to be Krishna. But Krishna even lets the devotees know what it's like to be Krishna. Oh, I know where I talked about my Bhagavad Gita class. So Krishna, the devotees of Krishna, they know what it's like to be Krishna. They experience the happiness of being Krishna. Just like Krishna experiences the happiness of what it's like to be his devotee. He comes as Mahaprabhu. Or even when he came as all the Calvary boys. Or even his incarnation of Balaram and so forth. So the devotees, sometimes they experience the ecstasy of Krishna. So the, the gopis, when Krishna left Raslila, they were all experiencing the ecstasy of Krishna. Krishna is not envious. Envious person says, I'll give you something, but not everything I have. I'll give you some of my money, but I won't give you everything. I want to have a little more than you. So we may think Krishna's like that. The Krishna's saying, okay, I'll give the jivas pleasure, but some pleasures I'll keep for myself. No, Krishna gives everything to the jivas. We also believe in oneness. In Chincha Veda Veda Tattva, we are also one with Krishna although we don't emphasize that as much, but it's also there. We talked about the Swarup of the living entity, text 39, that the devotees attain their original form, their actual form. 
In 44, Prabhupada makes a, a point which he makes frequently that a part of a machine in a machine is valuable, out of a machine is not valuable. So the other day when we were speaking about humility, we talked about our insignificance out of the machine. Out of the machine, we have really no more value than the bugs that die on the windshield of a car, as far as the universe is concerned. But when we're connected with Krishna, we have great value. Connected with Krishna, you're a great villain. If you have a machine that's missing a little part, it can be a real problem. You know, you have a, a keyboard and one of the keys is, doesn't work. I remember my daughter-in-law, her, one of her children, one time took all the keys off of her keyboard. So my son was able to fix everything except for the space bar. So she's writing me things with no spaces. It was very hard to read. And so the space bar is just a little piece of plastic. Outside of the machine is nothing. You see a little piece of plastic on the ground. What do you care for it? Nothing. No value. But when it's on your computer, it's very valuable. I couldn't understand anything she wrote me. I said, you have to get another keyboard because it's impossible without space. So we may feel the devotee is humble. Without Krishna, I am really nothing. But with Krishna, I'm everything. I'm with Krishna, I'm very important. Without a space bar, there's no meaning. Try it sometime. Try writing a bunch of things without a space bar. There's no meaning. But it's just one little tiny piece of plastic. Each of us is very important to Krishna in our proper place. Out of our proper place, we have no value. And that, uh, it says in text 44 that Bhishma merged, but he, he wouldn't have been cheated. Krishna Chakravati Thakur says that it's not that Krishna would have cheated Bhishma. Bhishma was saying, this is what I want. I want to see Krishna driving Arjuna's chariot. I want to be fighting with Krishna. This is what I want. And Krishna is sitting right there. Krishna is not going to cheat Bhishma and send him to the Brahman. So this merging is like the merging of a green bird into a green tree. One finds one's identity. That in this state of samadhi, Bhishma gets all knowledge. The devotees get all knowledge by being in touch with Krishna, not separately. That Bhishma is known all over the universe. That's in text 45. The knowledge was in text 42. That everyone in the universe knew about Bhishma. I mean, maybe we're famous in our own temple, or maybe we're famous in Iskand. You know, maybe we're famous in our own country. Maybe we're famous on the planet. But how many of us are famous in the universe? So Bhishma was famous in the universe. Of course, it helped that his mother was Ganga. His mother was a demigoddess. He was educated on the higher planets. And Prabhupada makes the point that there was uh, traffic between the planets. There was interplanetary travel at the time of Bhishma. There's still some evidence on the Earth now of there having been interplanetary travel in those days. Like there's a tribe in Africa, what are they called? Dugans or something? I forget their name. And they have astronomical information which was only recently available to modern astronomers. They have knowledge about a star that's either invisible or only visible under certain circumstances and the movements of that star. And, and the, they're a simple tribal people. And the astronomers would say to them, how do you have this knowledge? And they said, well, some beings came from that star and told us. This is when they came and this is what they looked like and this is what their spaceships looked like. And they taught us all these things. You know, so many thousands and thousands of years ago. So, of course, you know, in the modern paradigm, that's ridiculous. But how do you explain that they have this knowledge, which is which only recently have we developed instruments to be able to ascertain? These, these things they're seeing are not visible to the naked eye, or even to simple telescopes. So there's so much. Uh, Sadhguru unfortunately didn't publish all of it, but before he died, he was one of the things he was working on was evidence of Vedic culture all over the world, evidence of interrelations between planets. 
So Bhishma was known to everyone and he knew everything. He knew that Krishna was also Brahman. He knew Krishna was also Paramatma. He had all knowledge. He wasn't, it wasn't just that because I know Krishna is a fighter on the battlefield that I don't have all spiritual knowledge. That's what he had. And Prabhupada said everyone can attain this samadhi of love through the nine processes of devotional service. And in text 43, he lists the nine processes. And Bhishma was so great that when Yudhisthira was separated from Bhishma, when Bhishma left the planet, Yudhisthira was at least momentarily sad. Not for some material reason, not he wasn't sad for Bhishma, but he was sad to be in separation from some a great from such a great soul. And then 48, we're looking at Gandhari. Kanharin Jatapasvini, Kanharin the ascetic. So Prabhupada says that she was not, that in character, she was not less than Bhishma. And she wasn't a great Mahajan like Bhishma, but as far as her character, her determination, her tolerance, her asceticism, her, uh, her general integrity of character, that she was an extraordinary person. You know, there's the principle that a wife should follow her husband. That's the principle. The man wants to feel that he's the authority. That's part of what gives him his energy. The woman wants to feel that she's loved and cared for, and the man wants to feel that he's the authority. So the woman isn't trying to follow the husband. But there's nothing in the scripture that says if your husband is blind, you have to be blind. She, so she took this following the husband far beyond anything enjoined in the scriptures. She said, I don't, she thought, I don't want to feel superior to my husband. Actually, I'd say she was superior to her husband on every level. But she didn't want her husband to feel like that. And you could say that she could have thought it would be service to her husband to be cited and be able to assist him. But I mean, after all, he was virtually the king and he had plenty of people to assist him. They weren't just some ordinary couple where if they're both blind, it's more trouble than if one of them is blind. And she didn't have to worry that her husband would have a lack of assistance. So she voluntarily blinded her eyes. So that's an incredible austerity. Of course, if she had done that to please Krishna, that would have been very nice. Instead of doing it for a material reason. But still, she had great strength of character. Who of us would have that strength of character for our duty? And Prabhupada also talks about how all her sons and grandsons were killed. So, this is practically unbearable. No ordinary person could bear that. And sometimes it happens in the world. I forget the name of it, but there was one family in America in World War II that all five of their sons were uh, serving in the military on the same ship. And when the ship blew up, all five of their sons died. And then they made a rule in the military in America that you can't put siblings all together. So a family wouldn't have all their children wiped out at once. But in the Bible, with Job, it said that all of his sons and daughters were eating, and there was some crash of the roof, and all of his children were killed. So, and just one after another with Job, he lost all of his wealth, he had many animals, all of his children died. You know, one after another, he lost everything, and his body became very diseased. So, and, and he was crying out, you know, what, what, is the, what is the reason for this? What did I do wrong? Why is God doing this to me? But we don't find Gandhari doing that. Gandhari is tolerating the ascetic. And that's inconceivable. So Prabhupada's talking about the many great personalities in the Mahabharata that are beyond, you know, anything that we can see today. I don't think we will find any people today who are capable of such austerity and such determination and such righteousness and such adherence to Dharma as these personalities who still continue to inspire us. Okay, we have a few items here about social systems. So let's take two verses, 41 and 49. So there's enough points here, I made it as a separate theme. So in 41, 
where Bijma was remembering, and he was fortunate he could actually remember it. So if we try to remember Krishna's pastimes, it has to be just from our hearing about them, whereas he was remembering because he was actually there. And he's remembering this Rajasuya sacrifice. So the Rajasuya sacrifice is to establish the emperor of the world. And before that sacrifice, there's a challenge horse sent out, probably describes here. They send out a horse, actually getting more than one horse, in all the directions of the world that says, you know, Maharajudasthir is going to declare himself the emperor. Uh, will you pay taxes? So taxes in those days were collected locally, and then a portion of the local, ta- all taxes were collected locally. I mean, I don't know what it's like in all of your countries. In America, you have to pay local taxes, state taxes, and federal taxes. Plus, you have to pay income tax, um, sales tax, um, petrol tax, so many other things. So here they paid only local taxes, and then the local king would take a portion of that tax and pay it to the next higher municipality. And all the subordinate kings, they paid to the emperor if there was a world emperor. It was something like a country that had many states, and each state has its own political system and its own political leader, but yet they're united as one country. So it's similar, exactly the same, the similar idea that there were many, many countries, but they were all united under Yudhisthira. So the horse goes out and says, you know, will you accept Yudhisthira as the emperor? And if you don't, then you have to fight. You have to fight to the death. Now, I don't know what happens if the emperor dies. Where we go from there. If the subordinate king dies, then the emperor may either just subsume that kingdom or may appoint, like in the case of Jarasandha, they appointed Jarasandha's son to rule the kingdom. You know, or those kings would just pay the tax. They says, yes, I accept you just here as the emperor and I'll pay the tax. And then Prabhupada also says in this purport, he says, because it says in the verse that all the elite men of the world, the royal and the learned orders. And Prabhupada says the important people at that time were the Brahmins and the Satriyas, the government heads and the priestly and intellectual heads. So nowadays in modern society, right, Prabhupada says that the vices and sutras were unimportant, elements were not mentioned here due to the change of social activities in the modern age. The importance of men has also changed in terms of occupational positions. So we've talked about socioeconomic status, right? And that one of those is your the level of your occupation. So it is true even in modern society that if you're a high government official or you're someone like a college professor, you are still up there as far as occupational status. But we give certainly in modern society as much occupational status to sports people, you know, and to um, entertainers, and to big business persons. So if you're a wealthy business person, you're just as important as if you're a college professor. You're just as important practically as if you're a head of state. So many people will come and see the president of a country or the prime minister of a country, but how many people will go and see some, you know, rock and roll singer? or some basketball star, or... So in these Vedic times, it wasn't like that. There was positions for the Vaishyas and the Sudras, but they were not put as the most important people in society, which makes a difference as far as the people in general, because people in general, they're following the leader. So if the leaders are the Vaishyas and the Sudras are both... Uh, Sudras very much conditioned by ignorance, and Vaishyas partially condu- conditioned by ignorance. When they become the leaders of society, that's not very good for the society in general. I'm going to look at 49. I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise. I want you to find in 49 per port, what are the four areas that Srila Prabhupada says a king is responsible for? And now this is going to be a little hard. Let me do that first. Just write down, please write down the four areas that a king is responsible for. And when you've done that, just put up, put down your pencil and just look up so I know you've done it. 
you can share some of book. Here, I should use my book for this exercise because I already know what's there. Just give it back. It's not actually in my book, it's in the IHS book. It's on 49. Find the four areas of responsibility that a king has to take. Write those down. Have you got it? Okay. Everybody done? Sweet, everybody's done with that? That's step one. Normal usage, art means money, or 
wealth, but anything that's valuable. And then Dharma here is a little different from Sanatana Dharma. Dharma is your ordinary duties within the world, as we said, morality, ethics, justice, fairness. So that's political. And then spiritual has to do with liberation, and our social dealings have to do with sense gratification, with enjoyment. So the king has to do all these things. Now, what, what strikes me particularly, I talked about this uh, before, but I, I talk about it again because I think it's quite important, that we really need to think about, as members of ISKCON, somebody needs to think about, as members of ISKCON, how we envision ISKCON's role in forming a society. Because a society needs to have Ksatriyas. Now, I see that uh, Sheila Prabhupada talks quite a lot in his books about government, quite a lot about Ksatriyas and the role of Ksatriyas and the duty of Ksatriyas, as we were saying. The Bhagavatam itself is full of the stories of Ksatriyas. Now, in the early days of ISKCON, and I've taught ISKCON history at Radhadesh three or four times in the college there. So in the early days of ISKCON, we accepted that people with Brahminical and Shudra propensities were very welcome. We could say, you know, if you have your Brahminical propensities, you can use that in service on a personal level, and you can contribute to Mahaprabhu's mission. And if you have Shudra propensities, then also you can engage those propensities on a personal level and contribute to Mahaprabhu's mission. Although I have one temple that only facilitates Brahmanism, so the paint's always coming off the wall and coming in works. But generally, we, we act, what I would call activate Brahmins and Shudras. And for many, many years, we did not really accept Vaishas or Ksatriyas. That if you had Vaishya tendency or Ksatriya tendency, there wasn't much of a place for you in ISKCON. As a Vaisha, maybe if you wanted to take care of cows on the farms. And then at some point, some probably, some probably sometime in the 80s, middle, late 80s, or early 90s, when the social structure is kind of went through a very dramatic change, then all of a sudden we started encouraging Vaishas because all of a sudden we needed money. Before that, we were a very ashram, communal-based society. Everybody went out and sold books. Later, they went out and sold other things. And turned and gave all the money to the movement. And we were all living communally. And we were living communally. It's cheaper. Just like being married is cheaper than being single. Because when people get divorced, then the woman has to make to have a house, and the man has to have a house. When they're married, they're in the same house. It's much cheaper. We used to live in the same building as the Gurukula, and then, you know, one bill for the mortgage, one bill for the electric. It was much cheaper. So people living communally is much cheaper. You have the economy of scale. And when people started moving out of the ashrams for various reasons, uh, some of them just the natural maturation of, of a society, then all of a sudden that wasn't going on anymore. And when people no longer were interested in just selling flowers and etc. on the street for other reasons, which we're not going to do, then you know there wasn't much money, and so all of a sudden it became wonderful to be a Vaisha. You could be a great devotee Vaisha yourself. All of a sudden you could use your Vaisha propensities in Christian service, and you could contribute to the mission as a Vaisha. It's quite interesting to me that in so many temples, including this one here, that we regularly read the book scores and the big donors. Those are two things. The book scores and whoever gave a big donation. They're the ones praised in front of everyone. That uh, Who you praise has a lot of effect on your culture. It actually establishes your culture. But as far as I can see, we still have not facilitated the exceptions. And a lot of the controversies in Islam center around Satriyas. First of all, Satriyas are engaged not just in spiritual service to the society, but also social, political, and economic service to the society. Satriyas' main business is what she probably calls social welfare work. That's what a Satriya does. A Satriya does not spend most of their time 
running around on battlefields. Now, Bhishma may have fought on thousands of battlefields, but the man lived for an awfully long time. But he also could speak on subjects with thousands of meanings. He took care of the citizens. We read about how in those kingdoms there was ample food and there was right which are reading prosperity with plenty. How much material prosperity there was. Satrias made sure that people who were injured or homeless were taken care of. They made sure that people had clean water supplies, that the roads were in good repair. What government does. Satrias means government. And they did just what governments do today. They made sure there was a police force and there was working roads and there was public transportation and there was parks and there was gardens and there was water supply and there was ample food distribution systems. There was ample employment. Prabhupada said they'd also make sure that those who said they were Brahminas were actually Brahminas and those who said they were vicious were actually vicious. Just like modern governments, they have some way of certifying medical doctors and lawyers and so forth. You have to get some sort of government certification. You can't just put up a sign and say, I'm a dentist. So this is all the job of a government. And as this kind is growing, there are devotees who have this, these sexual tendencies who start to do these sort of things. And they're often criticized. You know, you're not supposed to be doing any social welfare work, but that's what exceptional does. They do social welfare work. And exceptions also are, are fighters. And as I said, I believe that some of our very, some of our most frustrated critics are just frustrated. They're fighters and they're into morals and ethics and justice. So they don't have a battlefield to go on, they go on the internet. They used to write papers and mail it out. Satyas are also very good at collecting and redistributing wealth. So if you see, especially a high level of Satya, you'll see that they're dealing with a lot of money, although they're not generating it. And uh, our devoting satriyas generally are not actually in government, so they can't collect money by taxes, and we don't have a discount tax system. So they're collecting money in donations, and then they're redistributing it for schools, or for medical centers, or for some sort of public welfare work, along with yoga. So I've seen that people who have that propensity are mostly working somewhat outside of this kind. It's hard for them to work in this kind directly because we haven't really acknowledged what do those people do in this con exactly? Is that okay? It is okay to just open schools and open hospitals and provide for waterworks and what what is this con's role? This is something that I believe that we need to talk about or somebody needs to talk about. I don't know if the people in this room, but somebody needs to be talking about this and saying, you know, as Mahaprabhu's movement grows, should ISKCON become the government? Do we expect that ISKCON itself is going to become government? Or is ISKCON going to function primarily as an educational and advisory organization which trains people to run governments and advises people who run governments or are we going to try to run them ourselves? And this is an important question because I know, as I travel over the world, I know of some devotees who are definitely centuries and very qualified centuries also. They're collecting huge amounts of money, redistributing huge amounts of money, and they're doing things like working with cow protection, uh, not themselves protecting cows, but creating cow protection projects, creating schools. They're not teaching them schools, but they're creating schools. Uh, they're creating programs to train people in vocational arts. They're building waterworks. They're, they're doing this kind of thing. Some of the devotees I know in this capacity are working directly with governments. And everyone I know who's in that capacity is getting a tremendous amount of criticism from some other aspects of these companies. Every single person I know in that category who is very successful is getting a lot of criticism. And the criticism level with them is this is not healthy. This is something else. It's not healthy. So I'm confident that just like we eventually gave a place to our vices, we will eventually give a place to our subjects, but it might be wise to think about it and plan it, uh, because if it's done improperly, you have a problem. Just like with vices, if the donors are controlling the temples, if a temple gets controlled by vices instead of by brahmanas, it's a catastrophe. Similarly, if you have a project run by satriyas that's not under the control of brahmanas, it will also be a catastrophe. 
spiritually speaking. And unless we actually facilitate some sort of space for everybody, that's exactly what will happen. And it is the kind of thing that will happen. So these things in Shiva Prabhupada's books about Dharma, Artikana, Moksha, social, political, economic, spiritual, this is not just some nice theoretical idea that we read and we say, yes, yes, isn't that interesting? But it's really a blueprint for us in some function or another to have a stable society, to have an international society for Christian consciousness to actually take over the world. And when I was a very new in ISKCON, I remember my mother coming to me and said, what kind of plan do you have for the future? She said, you're going out and selling these books, and people are supposed to read the books and move into your temples, and then when they move into your temples, they sell books. And she said, well, what will happen when the whole world moves into your temples? Who will you sell your books to? She said, if you were actually successful, you would destroy yourself. What's your next step? And I just thought, oh, she's just critical on the body. But that's actually a very good question. And something that we that we need to put some attention to. Okay, so today we looked at the theme of Rasa, we looked at the greatness of devotee, the social system. And we have 20 minutes left of this time together on chapters 8 and 9. So any questions from this section or from anything, we could also take if no one has from this section, anything from 8 or 9 as we're wrapping up here. Yes. down the verse number? Huh? About everybody who went to Vaikuntha? point there on 528 which we didn't talk about where it says that a spiritual form like the Lord is either two-handed or four-handed is attained by the devotees of the Lord either in the Vaikuntas or in the Goloka planet according to the original nature of the soul and that sentence indicates at least to me the most straightforward reading of the English is that some people's original nature is in Vaikuntha that's a little side point but uh, I believe that was yesterday I think it was where Prophet said that Bhishma is definitely going to Vaikuntha, but as a humble devotee, he's just saying, I just want to think of you wherever I go. That's all that I can remember. It's something like that you wanted the form of the Lord to come. Yes. Because uh, he wasn't sure that even if he went to Vaikuntha, he'd have dashed of the Lord there. Um, of that form of the Lord. Yeah. Not of the Lord at all. But he wanted that particular form. So he was asking, you know, I want that particular form. I don't just want to go to Vaikuntha and see any form of the Lord. I want to see that form. Yes. 
complex question. And there are also some statements. Adibo, thank you for being with us. There are also some statements about the living entity being able to change. So in devotion, Srila Prabhupada talks about how those in Vaikuntha may not be finished, and that from Vaikuntha you can go to the Lord of Vrindavan. And here he's saying that depending on your original place, you can go to Vaikuntha. Also, Rupa Goswami, I wanted to be something really controversial. Rupa Goswami talks about that if you offend devotees, it may degrade your side love, and you may go from being a conjugal lover to being a coward lover. So let's not go there because I can't answer those questions at all. Just to simply say that there's quite a bit of interesting statements like that that are really conceivable. You know, where Mahaprabhu taking Ram Bhaktas and making them into Krishna Bhaktas, which he did on several occasions, or or Narayan Bhaktas and making them into Krishna Bhaktas. So I think we can, you know, we could say that at least for some souls. Even though they're in a perfected state, they're not at their level, their ultimate level of perfection, and for other souls, their most perfected state would be in Vaikuntha. That's how I understand it. I'm not going to take that my understanding is the understanding, but that's how I've made sense of it. In Riyad Bhagavatamrita, Gopakumar keeps going higher and higher and higher. He keeps getting to a point where he says, okay, now I'm perfect, and then he's, and he goes to a higher level. I don't have it off the top of my head. I'm sure I'll find it as I'm going through NLD and then on. Yes, it's in Bhakti Prasamrita Center for sure. And I'll remember exactly what But he definitely gives that as one result of offenses. She can do anything, so anything's possible. Well, that's a nice answer. That just covers everything. Rita and Anamara, she says, he says, don't play the inconceivable card too often. Yeah. Well, the answer to that is it's inconceivable. The answer to that is it's inconceivable. The answer to that is it's inconceivable. I mean, on one level, that's true for everything. That if we're material consciousness, we can't really understand and really conceive of things that are beyond our level of consciousness. And we reach a, a point of inconceivability when it comes to almost any question we ask. As we keep asking more and more and deeper levels of that question, we start, we run up against the wall of our limit. And then we have to say, well, I can't really understand beyond this wall. So to some extent, we, we have to play the inconceivable card quite a lot if you keep taking things to their logical conclusion. I mean, even Kunti said she was bewildered by the contradictions in Krishna. That there's this and then there's that. This is, you're unborn, but you're born. Others. We're always bewildered. We just love Krishna. We don't try to... I mean, even materially... Can we really understand another jiva thoroughly? No. But we can love them. But do, do we really fully understand them? I don't, I don't even know if I fully understand myself. I just need fully understanding somebody else. Sometimes I move over myself. Or why did I do that? Why did I say that? Sometimes I don't have an answer. You know, they tell teachers if you're disciplining children, you don't say to the child, well, oh, why did you do that? But sometimes you don't even know why you do that. I'm going to understand which. So other questions on this chapter? On these verses or any of the other verses? Yes?
Depends. Is the person running a temple or are they running a community? If they're running a temple, no. If they're running a community, yes. If you talk about the nature of the position. So people running a temple traditionally were Brahmanas. Somebody, just running something doesn't make you exceptional. So if you're running a school, you're, you can be a Brahmana running a school. You can be you can be on the edge. You can be somewhere with the where the categories overlap. Just like Marjananda was a king of the Vaishas. He's a Vaisha, but he was called a king. So you can have you know, you can have Shudras who are practically like business people. And business people who are practically like Shudras because it's a continuum. So you can have Brahmanas who are almost like Satriyas, and Satriyas who are almost like Brahmanas, and you know, Satriyas who are almost like Vaishas, and Vaishas who are almost like Satriyas. For each of those, because there's a there's a kind of a it isn't it's not a solid line, and everybody's ten meters away from the line on either side. It's, it depends on the mixture of the modes. So you can have Brahmanas who have some Satriya-type qualities and Satriyas who have some Brahmana-type qualities. I mean, you used to seem to have a lot of Brahminical-type inclinations. He was very forgiving, for example, very tolerant, much more like a Brahmana. I mean, he was a fighter like a Satriya, and he was interested in ethics and care of the people. He was certainly a Satriya, but he seemed to have some extent of Brahminical inclinations also. There's other brothers you didn't see that in. And as I said, Nandamaraj is called a king. And you have some Brahmanas who are just really into competition and fighting, and they may even have, like sometimes the Satyas would give, as we said, a Brahmana village that you could collect the taxes from. So when anybody gets Brahman initiation, they don't need like, they can be in any category? That's another point of confusion. So does Brahman, is Brahman initiation a material varna, or is it something that's spiritual? So again, part of this confusion is that the many of the nine processes of devotional service and the varna activities of brahmanas are the same in externals. So that's part of our confusion. My understanding is that there are several reasons why Prabhupada wanted to establish his disciples as brahmanas. One is to show that Vaishnavas are as good or better than brahmanas, and the other is practically that Vaishnav Diksha involves deity worship. There's five parts to Vaishnav Diksha. One of them is getting the Sampradaya mantras, the Gaiji mantras, and one of them is engagement in deity worship. So you can't really get Vaishnav Diksha without getting that aspect of it. So two of the aspects of Vaishnav Diksha. Of course, Prabhupada also said just getting Harinam is sufficient to become a devotee. You don't need the full Vaishnava diction in order to become a great devotee. More things that can make your head spin in circles. But the Ksatriyas also, the Ksatriyas and the Vaishyas also got the sacred thread and they also chanted the Gaitri mantras. But we don't consider that devotees are really, if you're actually a devotee, you're not really, you're not a Sudra, Vaishya, or Ksatriya, or Brahmana because you're under the modes of nature but you just have a body that functions that way. And so therefore you're engaging your body according to its propensity. But your mentality isn't in that mode. So the mentality of a Vaishnava should be that in goodness or transcendental, even if the kind of, of body that they have is applying to sutra work or to Vaishnava. That's the best I can do with that, I think. At least right now. Maybe another time I can do better. But right now I think it's the best I can do. Each 
with so many different devotees on different services. It's like today we're remembering the passing of Gobi Pranayana. So for many years I worked with him on the Shastra Advisory Councils in the GBC. So that's the soul to soul. I mean, it depends how you what your consciousness is, but that's the way we work. We were all working to do some service. You care about each other. It's not that you don't care about each other. You care about each other a lot. But it's not... It's a, it's a it's a co-worker in service. It's a, it's a partnering in service. And I've worked with many groups of devotees for sometimes for decades on different projects and different service. There's definitely a bond of affection between the devotees that work together in these projects. That's natural. But you're working together to try to please Krishna. You know, I work with the editors of one of the editors of Back to Godhead. And, you know, our goal is to produce a first-class magazine. And we work with each other for that purpose. Sometimes we even correct each other because we also submit articles. So sometimes one of the editors submits an article and then we critique that. So we have friendly dealings with each other. There's a feeling of, of friendliness and care and affection with each other. What's interesting about that group is we have never once physically been in the same room together. Never. I worked with them since 1990, so that's 22 years. And not one time has the whole group sat down in the same room. In fact, most of those devotees, I don't see it. I mean, I may see them. One of them I haven't seen for 14 years. And others I may see you know, occasionally. I saw one of them recently and just, oh, I go, how are you doing? I'm going to find this. Now, but we're working together in service and we care. And my experience is when you work together in service with somebody for 10, 20 years, when they die, you cry. You care about them, they're your friend. But they're not your friend in a material level. It's not like they're your friend because they're doing something for your sense gratification and you're doing something for their sense gratification, mental or, or physical or any, any level. It's just not happening. It's not happening at all. I mean, I've been with some groups of devotees where perhaps that is happening more, but I've also been with groups where that isn't. It's just, there's no sense gratificatory process going on. We're working together to serve Krishna, but we also care about each other. We might care about each other a lot. Might not just be, oh, they're a nice person. You might end, you know, end up very deeply caring about each other. Is that normal? Yeah, this was the purpose I was looking for. That doesn't mean in Vaikuntha. In other words, Bhishma was definitely going to Vaikuntha where he would see the Lord. But Bhishma was very humble. He was thinking, maybe I won't go to Vaikuntha and see the Lord. Bhishma wasn't thinking, maybe I'll go to Vaikuntha and not see the Lord. He was thinking, maybe I won't go to Vaikuntha. Maybe seeing Krishna now when I'm dying will be the last time I'll ever see Krishna. That's, yes, you found it. That was the one I was thinking. Is that right? Yes? You mentioned about placing the Kshatriyas in the proper place. Yes. Uh, was it, does it mean placing the Kshatriyas in, in their respective activities for the storm or outside? I don't know. I have my theories. I think that the storm is more common to the material. I would suggest you read my article, What is ISKCON and What is a Member of ISKCON, that I put on ISKCON.com and Dundabuds, and see what I... I I'm, at this point, I feel my job is to, is to provide different scenarios. I'm not in the position to make these sort of choices anyway. 
but my service and my, my appropriate role is to say there's this scenario and there's that scenario. I mean, one scenario is that ISKCON is running the world, that ISKCON is the world government. That ISKCON, the organization, the legal organization run by the GBC, is the world government. And that the whole world is the property of ISKCON and there's nothing outside of it. That's one possibility. If we're looking at, you know, what's our goal if Mahaprabhu's movement is taken over the world? What's ISKCON? You know, I think years ago we assumed that, first of all, that Mahaprabhu's movement and ISKCON were synonymous, that there wasn't any movement of Mahaprabhu outside of ISKCON and nothing in ISKCON was outside of Mahaprabhu's movement. There's no way you can assume that anymore. That's, that's now become an absurd assumption. Even when we did assume that, it was absurd. We just didn't notice that there were other members of Mahaprabhu's movement that didn't happen to be his even though Prabhupada said so. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is that the government is separate from ISKCON, but ISKCON is the world church, like the Roman Catholic Church was in Europe in the Middle Ages that ISKCON is the only spiritual organization on the planet. Another possibility is the government is outside of ISKCON, and ISKCON is one of several spiritual organizations in the world. Now, if ISKCON was either the world church or one of several spiritual organizations, would ISKCON itself be running any governments? And I think this is a very important question. I see evidence for and evidence against. The evidence for is Prabhupada wanting us to build Mayapur as a city. It would be ISKCON property. It would be a city or a small village or a large village or a small city that would actually be ISKCON property run by Also, in the farm communities, at least when Chilaprabha was here, they were on ISKCON property and they were being run by GBC. Although they were communities, they were not temples. So that's the evidence I see in favor. Um, I haven't seen that that worked very well, just historically speaking. The evidence against is Chilaprabha's strong negative statements about ISKCON's role in social welfare work. So Prabhupada is very, very strongly negative about ISKCON, the society, becoming involved in social welfare work. At the same time, he describes that if you have a Krishna conscious government, of course they're engaged in social How can a government not be engaged in social welfare work? That's what a government does. It's like saying a Vaishya shouldn't be engaged in making money. That's what a Vaishya does. If you say a Krishna conscious Vaishya, like we're going to have this business degree, at Radhadesh, Bhakti Vinanta College, and one devotee was writing up some material for it and said, come join our business degree and learn how to live on the bare necessities of life. I said, who is going to join your business degree? What Vaisha wants to live on the bare necessities of life? Who is going to sign up? What Brahmin wants a business degree and what Vaisha wants to live on the bare necessities of life? So advice is going to generate wealth and Kshatriya is going to engage in social welfare work. Of course. But Prabhupada was not inclined, thank you, to have ISKCON, the institution, do social welfare work. So the first thing induces me to say that we should, the second induces me to say that we shouldn't. My own personal conclusion, which has probably no meaning for anybody, is that ISKCON should, should, that we should start thinking about ISKCON as a smaller society instead of a bigger society. We should stop trying to do everything, be everything, and be everyone because we can't. And it's not our role anyway that we're meant to be a spiritual and educational society made up primarily of Brahmins, that our full-time members should be primarily Brahmins, and our centers should be primarily worship and education, and maybe have a few model villages that we also run where we have our own satriyas as models for the world. And other than that, the rest of the world not be on ISKCON property and not be run by the GBC and not be run by ISKCON. But where we train people in ISKCON to go out and be the Krishna conscious shudras and vaishas and satriyas and other Brahmins elsewhere. 
Now, one of the reasons I believe that to be what should happen is because that is exactly what is happening. And I, I just simply see that that is what's happening. I, I travel all over the world. I see communities all over the world. I see the Mahabharata's name is being sung, Hare Krishna Mahaprabhu is being sung in almost every town and village of the world. But I see that a lot of that is now happening off, off this country and not under the official jurisdiction of the GBC. That's what I'm seeing practically. And I'm seeing that especially the devotees from Kshatriyas, they are starting projects independently or quasi-independently. It's just practically what I'm seeing. They're almost being forced to. So I, what I saw not that long ago, and I just got another email from this devotee, is people who are real Kshatriyas and they're trying to do it in this And they get to a point that it just doesn't work anymore. Just doesn't work. What they, what they want to do becomes incompatible. It's kind of like if you wanted to use a temple to have a big business, devotees would do that sometimes. You know, probably stop it. Let's turn the whole temple into a jewelry business. So let's turn it and stop it. So the same thing when people start getting into, you know, well, let's work with the governments and let's do this thing. We're going to do this for solar energy. We're going to do this for wastewater management. And we're going to build this big school for 100,000 people. And then it just doesn't work. And the ISCOM leaders start saying, oh, that's not what we want to do here. And then they end up going. But when they go out, then they feel like, well, I don't know if I'm really a devotee anymore. And I don't know if I'm really sheltered anymore. And, and it's, it's a very difficult situation. And I've ended up counseling a lot of these people. And some of them are in positions where they are collecting incredible amounts of wealth. In, amazing, you know, just an incredible amount of wealth. And they're making facilities sometimes for thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, and they're, all, they're almost always these people working with governments. And they're devotees, you know, they're chanting 16 rounds, they're following the principles, they're reading the Prabhupada's books, they're worshiping the deity, they're offering their food, they have shelter under ISKCON spiritual leadership, and so forth. That's just what I'm seeing is happening. Whether I think that's what should happen or what shouldn't happen, it is what's happening. And I'm wondering if we should look at that and say, well, if that's what's happening, maybe we should work with that. And maybe we should facilitate that. Maybe we should acknowledge that. Uh, just like a devotee wrote me recently about uh, one, one GBC man had said we could form different orders within ISKCON. You know what an order is? Catholic order. They call it enclaving. And you really think we should do that? And I said, We're, we've been doing this for years. We're just not calling it that. I said, We have certain leaders in ISKCON that have a particular view of how to apply Krishna consciousness. I don't want to get very specific here. But we have certain leaders who have a, a very outspoken and very particular personal view that this is how we should apply Krishna consciousness. And they have their followers who are, who are following them and applying Christian consciousness in that way. And then we have another leader over here who has a very different view. And right now they're all under the GBC and we, we pretend that everybody's like one. We pretend that we all, we all agree, but we don't. And Prabhupada said unity and diversity. You know, what does that mean? So we, we already have within ISKCON, we have groups that have different ideas about how to apply Shri Prabhupada's teachings. So it already exists. We're just not saying, oh, you are this order, and you have our permission to exist as this order, and you have this name, and you have this place. We're pretending it's not there. And the other alternative is, of course, splits and schisms, and sister organizations. So we already have that, too. We have lots of them. And they're growing all the time. Now those, we can't pretend they're not there. We acknowledge that they're there, but we say they're all bogus. So any sister organization we say is bogus, and any enclave organization we say doesn't exist. How long are you going to continue like that? I mean, some of them are bogus, obviously. That's another question. I'm not saying that every sister organization is bona fide. That would be ridiculous. But I see this already happening. 
there's already Satria starting to build governmental type things, either in ISKCON or usually semi-ISKCON. And there's already all kinds of sister organizations growing, and there's already, there must be, Christian does copyrights at every branch have hundreds of sub-branches. And Rob said we're a branch, so if we're a branch, we're going to have hundreds of sub-branches. Some are going to be inside, some are going to be outside. So as, as a sociology professor, I, I see this already happening. It's, it's, just, it's there. We can think it should be there, it shouldn't be there. We may like it, we may not like it. We, you know, Whatever we may think about it is almost irrelevant. It's almost like, well, who cares what you think about it? It's already there. And if it's there, why not, why not meditate on, okay, if Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is running the show and this is what's happening, how is, how is this within his plan? What parts of it are outside of his plan? What parts of it are inside of his plan? What is his plan? What, what is, what is Mahaprabhu's vision and how can we work with that? And a lot of the answer to that question I see is how we deal with the centuries. How we engage the centuries. So I'm not pretending that I have an answer. That would be ridiculous. I'm just one of the little, little, little tiny soldiers. As I said the other day, I've never been invited to the meeting of the generals. Have never invited me into their planning room. Hasn't happened. I doubt if they ever will. They just, you know, I'm not giving them that kind of vision and instruction, nor do I think I ever will be. But I am saying that we need to think about this. Somebody needs to think about this. Somebody needs to talk about this. Somebody needs to, we need to start having visionaries who think about, okay, how, what does it mean to develop a society? instead of just kind of going on as if it's still 20 years ago. Or, or going on as, as, and not taking what Shil Prabhupada says in the books and saying, what are we supposed to do with So thank you very, very much. Uh, anything I've said that you feel is useless or foolish or irrelevant to you, please disregard it. And anything I've said that's useful, I hope that you can hold on to it and do something with it. I want to thank all of you for being just a lovely audience.